Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're beginning a brand new series in the book of Colossians called The True Christian. So let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Genuine. Now, I use the word as opposed to fake or even a forgery. You know, some time ago, just out of curiosity, I did some reading on the matter of forgeries in the art world, and it turns out there's a huge business for paintings that are passed off as genuine. The quality of some of the forgeries are very good, and sometimes even major museums have forgeries hanging in their gallery. There's a great deal of money to be made by passing off a forgery as genuine. You know, but of course, it's not just the art world. It's true in a great deal of other realms. It's true when it comes to money. It's true when it comes to passports. It's true when it comes to diplomas and degrees from academic institutions. It's true in a number of areas where men and women wish to lie convincingly in order to get what they want. And here's a secret. It's also true in the spiritual realm. And more specifically, it's true in the Christian world. Men and women try to pass themselves off as genuine when they're not. And here's where it gets especially sad. Sometimes the deceptions are so great that the men and women in question are self-deceived. They have, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.5, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. That is, the power of conversion to fundamentally change the heart so that a man or a woman goes from being a lover of self to a lover of God. See, there are individuals who imagine themselves to be Christians but have no idea of the power of the Holy Spirit in a human life. They pass themselves off as the real article, fooling not only others but themselves as well. The deception is so deep, so profound that the person in question simply assumes that everyone else is just like them. But they've never known Christ. And I say all of this as an introduction to the important book of Colossians. You know, as John Kelvin, seeking to describe this book, said, the epistle of Colossians distinguishes the true Christ from the fictitious one. That is, even Christ himself is being forged. Now, those who know the Bible well won't be surprised by that. And I say we shouldn't be surprised because this is the very thing that Paul warned the Corinthian Christians about. You might remember 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4, Paul mentions another Jesus, essentially a forgery, passing off a forged Jesus as if he was the real one and selling that forgery to unsuspecting and gullible religious people. In essence, says Calvin, that's what the book of Colossians is all about. Now, I don't disagree that that's a major theme in this fascinating book. I mean, Colossians really does have what we might call a Christological theme. That is, it spends a fair bit of time accurately describing the real Jesus. That's especially important, not just for ancient Christians, but for modern ones as well. It is simply diabolical. The cults, as well as hopelessly misinformed religious people, attempt to cast Jesus after their own understanding and so effectively replace the real Jesus with a counterfeit one. Colossians is especially helpful in correcting that error and showing us what's genuine. But there's another aim in Colossians, one I think that accurately tells us the ultimate purpose of this book. See, this book helps us understand 
whether you are a true Christian by whether or not you're following the real Jesus in the way he demands that you follow him, or whether you're following a fraud and doing so in a way that has nothing to do with following the real Jesus. In short, this book will help you to understand if you're genuine or a very clever forgery. Let's back off from the theme of this book for a moment and deal with you know, some of the background of this book. So we start with the author and the time in which the book was written. Indeed, let's begin by reading the first two verses of Colossians, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So this book begins by identifying the author. He is none other than Paul. And lest we miss which Paul we're speaking of, the book says he is the apostle of Christ Jesus. That means he's the man who early in his life was an enemy of Christ, who persecuted the church, and then because of the kindness of God, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and Paul was not only dramatically converted, but uniquely was given the calling to be an apostle. And that means, and and we find this in the book of Galatians, that the risen Jesus had for three years met with Paul and instructed him in the gospel. And so Paul takes his place alongside of the other apostles who were directly trained by Jesus. Now, I mention that not just because Paul identifies himself in this book, but because in recent years, there are a number of liberal scholars that have questioned whether Paul really is the author of this book. So they question Pauline authorship because in a number of places in this book, Paul uses a distinct vocabulary as well as a distinct sentence structure. And furthermore, at least so argue the liberal scholars, you know, the false teaching that Paul mentions in this book, they say didn't actually exist at the time of Paul. It came later, and so Paul couldn't have written this. Well, I don't need to tell you that, which should be obvious. As to the first criticism, that the unique style of this book precludes Paul from being the author, well, that theory, well, it's based on the assumption that Paul, one of the best educated men in the world of his time, was so grammatically limited that he could not avail himself of terms and phrases beyond what he had written elsewhere. I mean, that idea is so silly that I think it hardly worth a rebuttal. As to the second argument, that the heresies that are mentioned in this book didn't exist at the time of Paul, let me explain that. I know of no biblical scholar that can identify with any certainty the exact nature of the heresy Paul is opposing simply because, look, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what the false teaching is. And since we can't say with certainty what the false teaching was, well, it seems obvious then to make some kind of a determination as to whether that teaching actually existed at the time of Paul. Well, that's simply a fool's errand. So let's settle in on what we actually know. We know that from the time this book was written, that this book was written by Paul, and that has been universally accepted by all Christians throughout the centuries. It was not until the 19th and 20th centuries that the authorship of Paul has been questioned. And furthermore, the liberals I have mentioned, not one of them has one shred of ancient evidence doubting that this letter came from the hand of Paul. Given then that there's not one shred of attestable evidence that this comes from any other hand than from Paul, we're safe in assuming this is indeed a genuine letter. So that's it. We have a genuine letter written by Paul, the great apostle. 
And hence, since he was chosen as an apostle by none other than Jesus himself, we also know that this letter is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it says exactly what Jesus wanted to say to his church. So let's then move to the people who received this letter. Verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So Colossae, what do we know about that place? We know that this ancient city was located inland, about 200 kilometers inland from the ocean in what we now know as the nation of Turkey, or what was then known as Asia. We also know that there was a neighboring city to Colossae, which was the city of Laodicea. I mean, most Bible students recognize the name Laodicea because those are the words that come from the book of Revelation. And they were the lukewarm church that was in danger of having Jesus spit them out of his mouth. But let's not get distracted. Let's get back to Colossae. We know that Paul was not the founder of that church. But even though he didn't found that church, well, perhaps he indirectly did. We know that for some time, Paul had been ministering in Ephesus, That's the capital city of Asia, right along the coastline. And in consequence of his ministry there, remember, Paul stayed there for three years. Acts 19 verse 10 tells us, because of Paul's ministry there, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And among those people that heard the word of the Lord and had come to believe and had been trained by Paul, there was a young man by the name of Epaphras. And Paul mentions him in Colossians 4, 12 and 13. And it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, from that verse, it seems quite likely that it was Epaphras that had planted the churches of Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, all cities within close vicinity to each other. And so the man who started the church in Colossae was a man who had been directly trained by Paul. And so for that reason, you might think that Epaphras had told the church in Colossae about Paul and that the church there would have had a deep affection and even love for the man who trained the man who brought them the gospel. That brings us back to the reason for the writing of this letter. Something had gone wrong in the Christian church in that city. False teaching had crept in. There is nothing that happens apart from the hand of God. He rules everything. That's the theme of Back to the Bible Canada's annual scripture calendar. The 2024 In All Things scripture calendar reminds us every month in beautiful images, scripture, and inspirational thoughts that God is ever present. It also contains exclusive quotes from Dr. John Newfeld's new book, available in the new year. It's our hope that this wall calendar resource, complete with a one-year Bible reading plan, will encourage you and help you maintain a spiritual discipline of daily Bible reading in the new year. As part of our commitment to providing biblical resources without barrier, we're offering this calendar for free just for the asking. To request yours today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Some Christians in the church in Colossae had been influenced by false teachings, and Paul could not let that stand. Something had to be done. 
Indeed, in our day, false teaching is also prevalent. So this book is relevant to us. And so as we would expect, there are warnings in this book about false teaching. And that warning is found in chapter 2, verse 4. Paul writes, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Then on to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, and so on. Then to verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, and so on. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going in detail about visions. And finally, in verse 23, the warning about self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Now, those warnings, and I must add, only appear in that one chapter, chapter 2. And so it would be false for us to say that the entire book is written to combat false teaching. Nonetheless, Paul is quite aware that the Christians in Colossae are in danger of being deceived by something that seems to have made an impact on them. And although we can't be sure whether they were a series of false teachings or one religious option to the true faith, even so, we do well to try to piece together what might have been the possibilities of that false teaching. You know, a small group of scholars believe that the false teaching must have been some form of pagan Gentile false teaching. So they argue that the problem was some form of Platonic philosophy or Cynic philosophy. But that seems unlikely. That's because Paul also mentions Jewish festivals, things that pagans would not have concerned themselves with. Well, another possibility is because of the concern for feast days is mentioned, that the problem must have been Jewish legalism. But again, that doesn't explain the warning against philosophy and the concern over asceticism. That had nothing to do with Jewish legalism. Well, still others argue that the problem must have been Jewish mysticism, since a mystical form of Judaism would include Paul's warning about the worship of angels, and it seems to come out of mystical experiences, you see. Now, it needs to be said that Paul really does seem to target false Jewish teachers. He, he doesn't mention them, but he does seem to insinuate it. So a great many solid Bible teachers point out that the, the real problem in the Colossian church is the problem of syncretism. Indeed, the general culture of the Greco-Roman world really was syncretistic. It allowed for all manner of spiritualities to be combined in a number of religious traditions, allowing people to pick and choose whatever suited their specific spiritual needs. The Greeks and the Romans loved to blend together various religious traditions. Folk religions developed as a result. And this is the key. The Jewish world also had a form of syncretism. They would combine the Pharisaic insistence on circumcision and the need for ritual purity right alongside of worship of angels. And they even incorporated thought systems from the pagan cults. And that, it seems, was the real problem at Colossae. And might I add, it's the problem today. See, in our day, we call it pluralism or, you know, tolerance for other religious beliefs and philosophies. I mean, what could be wrong, that's how many reason, by borrowing from the belief systems of others? Indeed, wouldn't it show us to be more tolerant of others, indicating respect for their highest beliefs? So how does Paul respond to that? And for that matter, how should believers in our day respond to that? Now, some might argue that the way to counter this is to be specific in regard to every form of false teaching. Well, and just to be clear, there are some advantages in that approach. 
but have a look again at Colossians and see how Paul deals with it. First, look at the first chapter of the book. The first chapter is completely dedicated to explaining the uniqueness of Jesus. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, by him all things were created, both things that are visible and things that are invisible. That, by the way, might include those angels that some of them had been worshiping. It certainly says Paul includes thrones and dominions and authorities. And furthermore, in verse 17, Paul says that Christ holds all things together. And I hope Paul's method is becoming plain. He's not simply pointing out the errors in the beliefs of the false teachers. He's focusing on the unequaled supremacy of Jesus. That is, if you can just grasp who Jesus is, that he's the great creator, that all things exist at his permission, that because he's the creator, you can grasp the preeminence of Christ. Only then, he says, are you qualified to begin to evaluate the thought systems of this world. In short, you shouldn't begin by denouncing every false teaching. You should begin by answering the fundamental question before the human race. That question is, who's Jesus? Once you're able to grasp the answer to that question, you're now able to know what to do with the questions of pluralism. But that only takes us through the first two chapters of Colossians. There's still a lot more to go. See, after arguing that pluralism has no place among worshipers of Jesus and that all forms of idolatry need to be renounced, Paul's not done. You know, in chapter 3, Paul speaks to believers who know that Jesus is the Lord of the cosmos, that they need to live a life that's consistent with their confession. You can't just say you believe. you got to live consistently with what you know to be the truth. And stop there and consider how relevant that is to our modern age. What a tragedy when the morals of those who call Jesus the reigning Lord of heaven and earth don't measure up. Christian belief and Christian ethics can't be divorced from one another. And so let's see what Paul does in chapter 3. Indeed, let me say that he already leads into the change toward ethic in chapter 2, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world. I mean, what a statement. You don't just believe in Jesus. Your life is hidden in Christ. You're in Christ and you died to this world. And with that, we come to chapter 3, verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. To verse 5, put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you. And then he says what he means, sexual immorality, which, as we're going to see, speaks of all sexual acts outside of heterosexual marriage. Jesus, the creator of all things, has designed sex to function that way and in no other way. And then evil desires and even covetousness. Later in verse 8, Paul mentions things like anger and slander and obscene talk, as well as lying. I mean, that kind of thing. But Paul's not content to say, you know, do all these things, you know, for that's not the end of the matter. He talks about the things we should be doing. He speaks about compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. That's how Christians who hold to the preeminence of Christ are to act. See, the beauty of Colossians 3 is it's a call to abandon syncretism and not just an intellectual change of mind, but an ethical change of action. Live as if you believe it, says Paul. And truth be told, Christians should have a different lifestyle than anyone else in the world. And still, Paul's not done. I suppose he could well have ended Colossians with chapter 3, and that might have been a magnificent thesis against syncretism and in favor of singular devotion to Jesus alone. 
chapter 4 is more than simply words of greeting at the end of the book. Look at verses 3 and 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I hope you recognize that. The book doesn't end in telling us to live according to the truth. It ends in telling us to be involved in making sure the truth is told to the world. It ends with a clarion call to worldwide evangelism and mission. People should be called to believe on Christ. Well then, we are about to embark on a great study of the book of Colossians, and we're about to see the relevance of that book in our day, along with the battles that Christians need to fight. And so if I were to put it all together and in one sentence answer the question of what this book is all about, well, I'd say this book is about real Christianity or the genuine thing, the real thing, not the person who plays with the Christian faith, sometimes faithful and always straying, always allowing other influences to take over and become larger than the supremacy of Christ. You see, I started this message by saying there are many forgeries in the spiritual world. Men and women try to pass themselves off as genuine. Sometimes they're not. And because they're not genuine, they're not exclusively committed to Jesus or to his gospel. They fool with pseudo-Christianity, incorporating a number of non-Christian beliefs into their faith, and then they wonder why their faith doesn't work. But they didn't know it was all a forgery. Colossians is about the real thing. Well, join me in this fascinating study. John, thanks. I'm really looking forward to this series in the book of Colossians. But, uh, you know, a real, I guess, basic question in some respects is, are all inconsistent Christians, are are they actually not Christians at all? (laughs) That's a great question. And of course, if that were true, then of course, there would be none of us who are Christians. I mean, the reality of the Christian life is that we recognize that we often fail, uh, we are to confess our sins. Christ taught us to do so. And uh, we are to, you know, claim 1 John 1, 9 as our own, that he is faithful and just to forgive us. And we continue to do this throughout life. Uh, but I think what the, the difference here is that we continue to strain forward rather than to, you know, become sloppy and, uh, and uh, easily incorporate other belief structures into our faith. We do none of that because we are committed fully to Christ. So to be fully committed to Christ is to be genuine. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Colossians, The True Christian, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcast, and publications. One of these resources includes the bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine. Each issue features engaging and thoughtful writings from Dr. John, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and guest authors discussing critical themes of faith. We encourage you to subscribe today to receive a free copy of our December issue mailed directly to your home. Now's the time to sign up if you haven't already. You won't want to miss the special Christmas reflections coming in the December issue. 
To subscribe or for more information, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.